0: Once again, uh, for those of you who were not here last week, um, my name is Chris Holmes, and I'm newly on staff here at First Press as the Stemmler Scholar-in-Residence, and this is the second week of a series that started last week on journeys through the Bible. And what I'd like to do is uh, go ahead and open us in a word of prayer, and we will begin. God, we are grateful. Grateful to be here for a moment, to be gathered together to worship and learn and share life together. We ask God that you would enter into this space, enter into our hearts and minds, that we might be attentive to what you would have us hear and do. Thank you, Lord, for calling us and enabling us to be a people on the move and for promising. To send your presence as we move. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for those of you that weren't here last week, um, which is totally fine, I wanted to give just a brief review because I covered a good amount of sort of conceptual foundational ground last week. And so the, 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 the key idea from last week was that the biblical tradition Both Old and New Testament presents the people of God, the people of faith, primarily as a people on the move. And so we saw that uh, in the beginning of the story with Adam and Eve as they're exiled from the, from the Garden of Eden. We saw that, that at the end of the story in the book of Revelation with the nations coming to the New Jerusalem. We saw that in moments of Israel's life together like the Exodus and even the exile. And then uh, the ways in which the, er- the early Christians adopted this language of migration, of movement to uh, describe themselves and their character. And we talked a little bit about different ways that we might understand journeys and journeying. So we could think about a physical journey from one place to another. We talked also about the ways in which journeys are metaphorical and how we think about journeying in terms of personal progress or spiritual progress, Um, and in particular, the role of spirituality and journeying in the spiritual life. And then I presented a little bit about um, what scholars have identified as the age or the century of migration, uh, which is this, the realities of global migration in the 21st century, and using this as sort of a lens to think about this study and about journeying in the Bible. And then we, we did just sort of this way long contextual sort of presentation of how does journeying appear in the, in the Bible. And so... For today, um, we are going to talk about this topic, are we there yet? And we're gonna be talking about the exodus and the wilderness wondering. And I thought, what better way to maybe never be able to teach again at first than by by drawing some wisdom from the spiritual fathers and mothers in The Simpsons um, as a way of opening, our time together. Nope. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. Are we there So, if you're like me and if you've traveled it all this summer, you know just how true that can be. It feels like the minute you sit out of the driveway, already, are we there yet? I need a snack. I need to go to the bathroom. And that's just me, it's not even my children. So, In other ways, the the question, are we there yet, is an adequate question for the people of Israel and their time in the wilderness of journeying from slavery in Egypt to the promised land that God had promised to Abraham. It is a long journey. It is an arduous journey, and it is one in which complaints and rebellion and all sorts of things happen. And so we're going we're gonna to talk about the journey from Egypt to promised land in three acts. We'll have a prologue. We'll talk in Act 1 about plagues, Passover, and the Red Sea. In Act 2, we'll talk about the mountain of God, sort of the midway point in that journey. In Act 3, wilderness wandering. And finally, in an epilogue, uh, we'll talk about the, the life of Israel at the, at the Jordan. And then, uh, at the end, I'd like for us to reflect on our own journeys um, and and sort of put them in conversation with what we've read uh, and and learned about from Scripture. So, let's begin with the prologue. What is the setting um, that is important for us to know as we think about uh, this part of the Bible? So, you may remember, or maybe not, and that's fine, that at this point, Joseph and the people had come, people of Israel had come to settle in Egypt. Remember that Joseph and his brothers had quite a relationship, and uh, they were a little jealous of, them, of him, and instead of killing him, they were gracious, they just sold him into slavery, right? Um, eventually, Joseph makes his way into the court of Pharaoh, he, he rises up from the gutter to the court of the king and is an advisor to Pharaoh during a time of famine and hardship. And it is during this time of famine that eventually his brothers relocate to Egypt and they take up a dwelling in Egypt to get through the famine And scripture tells us that while in Egypt, the people of Israel grow immensely. They grow in numbers, they grow in prominence, and Egypt becomes something of a home to them. They're comfortable and they're respected, but eventually that begins to change. So this is how Exodus almost begins. It's verses 8 through 12 of the first chapter. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, The Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us, and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. What a turn of events to go from being a, 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 foreign, a group of foreigners, a, probably a minority, to outgrowing the host people. And the fear that comes with that, the fear that they're going to they're join our enemies at war. So uh, somebody thought up this great idea to oppress them with forced labor, to put them into slavery. And, uh, and Exodus tells us that, somehow, by some miracle, perhaps, that even as they're pressed into this forced labor, they still grow strong. They grow increasingly strong. And so, this is the setting of the Exodus, right? They've, they've come to Egypt, they've dwelled in Egypt, and they're now experiencing slavery. Who are the characters in this story? If we're talking about prologue, well, Micah 6-4, Micah is my name's son, so I had to get him in sometime. Darcy is my daughter's name. That's going to be harder, Um, but we'll try. We'll see if in the next several weeks we can get Darcy in. Um, But this is how Micah reflects on Exodus some four or five hundred years after the event. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam." So this is sort of the basic nuts and bolts of the Exodus, that God redeemed the people of Israel from slavery and led them out from Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. So I have a question for you to discuss. Which of the main characters, or what about the main characters do you remember? So Micah 6, 4 talks about Moses, Aaron and Miriam, and so I'd like for you to find someone and talk about what you remember briefly about each of those three. And then we'll we'll have an opportunity to talk back to me. So go ahead. We have a couple seats up front. I won't bite, I promise. No, no. For your family? No, no, for you, for you. One needs to be reserved for Elijah. Just joking. Okay. All right, so so tell me. Tell me what in the give me sort of an overview of the conversations that you all had. Did did you all remember equally about all three of these characters? No, No. okay, so who do you probably know the most about remember the most about? Moses, Moses. okay, so what are some of the highlights about Moses? What do we want to remember about Moses? He he looked like Charlton Heston (laughs) Archaeologists cannot confirm that but fair enough. What else do we know about Moses? Yes? Okay, good. So he was an infant in a basket, right? He, he is saved by water, uh, kind of like Noah, right? Interesting, okay. What, what a couple of other things about, no, about Moses. He stuttered, he stu- he stuttered yes. Uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. He, he at least said to God, I'm not a good speaker. What are you going to do with me? Um, okay, what do we remember about Aaron, if anything? He was the speaker, right? Uh, Moses assistant. He was Moses's assistant. assistant. Yeah, he he's actually Moses's brother, um, and served as the priest uh, uh, in ancient Israel. So so yeah, and yeah. Anything else about Aaron? Yeah. Did he take all the gold and make a uh, nice Yeah, yeah, he did. Yeah. So we'll talk a little bit more about this in in a few minutes, but he he is depending on how we think about responsibility, responsible for the golden calf incident. Um, at least he doesn't prevent it. Um, I saw, while I was preparing, I saw an icon, a modern icon of Aaron, and it's, it's, it's him with his fingers crossed, um, you know, hiding in. I thought, I'm, I'm not sure I feel comfortable presenting that. Um, that's a little too much interpretation for me. Um, <laughs> and then what about Miriam? Anybody remember details about Miriam? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. which was a brilliant idea, that yeah. would be well taken care of, but then recommended that her mother would be the nursemaid. Yeah, yeah, okay, so Miriam has a really important role in the life of Moses. For those of you who don't know, um, uh, well, Miriam is Moses' sister. Older, sister. Older sister. And so when, when mom puts little Moses in a boat to float down the river, or hides him rather in the reeds, um, she rushes out. The sister Miriam rushes out and says, "Once Pharaoh's daughter discovers this baby says, "Hey, I, I bet I have a nurse for you. I know a nurse who could take care of this baby for you." and the nurse turns out to be Moses' mother, actual birth mother, and then um, Moses ra- is raised up in the court of the king um, and so on and so forth. Moses mother's name. it's in Exodus seven and and I can't pronounce it, so I'm not going to try, um, but, it, but it's interesting, so, oh, please. Uh, it's Yopabeth, right? Yeah, that's right, that one. <laughs> I prefer the, 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 uh, the Greek names, I can handle those, the Semitic names are more difficult, no. So can you say it one more time clearly? It's yes, Jacobed. Oh, and her song, her song gets overwritten by Moses. Oh, I'm getting there, yes, about Miriam. Yeah, Yeah, yeah yes, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, so it's interesting that Moses' family is anonymous in the first part of Exodus. Um, his parents are not named until Exodus seven, and Miriam is not li- named until later. It's just Moses. Fascinating how this works, how the how the writings of Scripture work. So much of this has has been uh, has been sort of. Um, covered over, but I wanted to start with Miriam because I I figure most of us know the least about Miriam. And this is, um, as as feminist and womanist biblical interpreters would tell us, this is characteristic, not just of Miriam, but of women characters in the Bible who are either named or unnamed, maybe anonymous or not so much. But Christian history, and uh, to some extent Jewish history, tends to celebrate the men, right? We think about Moses and Aaron. Who's this Miriam? or uh, what about Moses's wife uh, who 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 this is sort of anecdotal to my presentation but saves Moses from God who is trying to kill him because apparently he wasn't circumcised yet and um, if you want to talk afterwards about how weird and gross that story is we can talk afterwards but um, and so Miriam um, is the unnamed sister in Exodus 2 and as Will Gaffney uh, explains in her book, uh, Womanist Midrash, uh, you should check this book out if you're interested in the women of Torah and the women in the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. Will Gaffney will be a Theoed speaker in February, so buy the book before she comes to Theoed, that's good. Um, she, makes a, she has about two half-chapters about Miriam in this book, um, and she explains that she is the mother of all women prophets in the Hebrew Bible. Bible, and she is the first female prophet in the Hebrew Bible. And why does she say that? Well, Exodus 15, 20 through 21, describes Miriam as a prophet. It says, then the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and with dancing. And Miriam, saying, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. And as, your name was Adam, as Adam was explaining, this song that follows gets co-opted into Moses' name. But most critical biblical scholars would say this probably was Miriam's song. Um, And it's one of the earliest pieces of poetry in the Pentateuch. Um, And so she is an important figure in this story. There's no Moses without Miriam, right? Uh, and, And I think that that's important for us to remember. Of course, Moses here. This is the this is the chiseled version of Moses. Not just chiseled in stone, like also ripped. Um, he's been doing his his bicep curls. Um, this is, this is Moses, and as we already reviewed, right, he has this birth and this rescue from, from Pharaoh at the time. Um, Pharaoh had an additional brilliant idea. Instead of just forced labor, he was going to kill all of the male Hebrew children. Uh, he made an edict to kill all the male Hebrew children. And so Moses is spared by being put in this reed, le- located in the, in the, uh, in the put it in a basket, located in the reeds, and eventually he is picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, raised in the household of Pharaoh, So. On and so forth. You may remember that Moses has his own journey of sorts. As he grows up in the, the, the household of the pharaoh, of the king, he eventually sees that the, the people of Israel are being mistreated. And he actually kills uh, one of the Egyptians who's, who's being abusive towards a Hebrew slave. And he flees. He begins, he's terrified that he's going to be found out. And so he goes to the land of Midian. Uh, he spends some time in there. He gets married to Zipporah, uh, his wife, um, and is responsible for the sort of livestock of his father-in-law. But eventually, he uh, is called by God. Uh, God, Exodus tells us, sees the plight of the people of Israel, he remembers uh, the promises that he's made to the people of Israel, and so he calls. And we see this call narrative in Exodus 3 and 4, and as we, as we heard in our discussion, he's reluctant. He, like many of the prophets in Israel's sacred tradition, he is reluctant. I'm not, I'm not a good speaker well who who should I they don't even know this God. these people aren't going to listen to me. who should I say sent me? so on and so forth. and so he eventually um, goes uh, with much resistance and only with the promise that Aaron uh, his older brother will go with him and I, I think I think if if uh, if Ryan was here today, I would ask him if Aaron the mouth would be, like, a good, like, Philly nickname, right? Aaron the mouth, the brother of Moses. Um, but, but Ryan isn't here, so I can't confirm or deny that uh, suggestion. But Aaron functions as the mouthpiece for Moses, um, be- particularly before Pharaoh, um, because Aaron, Moses is just so, con- so concerned about his ability to speech, or to speak, just like me, apparently. Um, that, that he wants Aaron to go forth and speak for him. And so Aaron um, also, as we heard, is an assistant in some ways to Moses um, and is oftentimes gathered with Moses at the mountain of God, um, has sort of this limited um, or prime access to uh, the God of Israel. And then the last character not mentioned, uh, but that's important for us to remember, of course, are the people of Israel, right? And... Uh, I think, chances are, we tend to think negatively of the people of Israel in the story. They're not presented in the best of lights. Um, they're pretty whiny. Uh, they're, they, they complain. They openly revolt. Um, they worship other gods. They have other things that happen. And, and so, really, the story from Egypt to the Promised Land is one of becoming. It is a, a, a people of Israel actually becoming a people, right? You might uh, think of them as sort of loosely affiliated tribal groups becoming something closer to what we would think of as a nation. Yes? Can you, can you tell us about the horns both here? Yeah. Good. Good. Somebody was going to ask about the horns. So does everybody see Moses' horns? That's, that's not... Um, that's not anti-Semitic um, or anti-Jewish, um, at, although there's plenty of that in Christian art, unfortunately. It is the result of a translation of the Vulgate, um, which, which tra- you know, the 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 short story is they have mistranslated the Hebrew, giving this impression that Moses had these horns. Um, uh, and so in a lot of iconography, you'll see him with, with horns um, of, of one shape or another. These are more curled. The other ones were just sort of poking out. Um, but a fascinating example of how transmission, textual transmission, how texts get translated, and then they get translated again into the form of artwork, um, and this becomes popular. Yes? Yes. This one, yeah. So this this is the breastplate. It's described in the book of Leviticus, um, which is uh, one of the one of the basically the the last four books of the Pentateuch are all about this journey. And Leviticus is one where we sort of stop the movement and we we focus about ritual. And so this is the priestly the the priestly. Uh, breastplate, um, and it's described um, in great detail. If you would like to go, I can uh, help you later with the exact references, um, but it has it has fine stones um, and and is 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 beautifully ornate, but it's it's what the high priest is supposed to wear. I love these questions. Anytime. I, I should have said this at the beginning of class. I said it at the beginning of class last week, I love the interaction, so just raise a hand, or not, and we'll, we'll, we'll go with questions. Yes, sir? What is it, 12 stones, does that represent the That, yeah, that, that's correct. The 12, 12 stones are symbolic of the perfect number 12, the, the 12 tribes of Israel. All right, okay. So let's, uh, let's talk act one, uh, plagues, Passover, and the event at sea. So, plagues, um, I, I, I found this while searching for images, I thought it was too good not to share. Yes, there is a coloring book for, for kids where they get a color in the 10 plagues, and it also includes Hebrew, because what else do you want to, your kids to be thinking about during worship than about the annihilation of another people group? As long as it's with crayons or markers, it's okay, right? Um, but in all seriousness, this is, uh, this is a famous part of the biblical tradition. It's something that theologians, biblical scholars, ethicists wrestle with, right? This is a part where we, we sort of cringe a little bit or, or at least have questions about why would God do this. Um, but basically, we have these 10 plagues that are presented early in the book of Exodus. Um, this is Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh. It's basically, hey, God says, that I should come to you and that you should let these people go so that they can worship me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh doesn't is not having that. He's he's going to say no a dozen or so or well lots of times and Uh, There's this pattern in these plagues where this initial demand is made, Pharaoh refuses, Moses says, okay, let me show you what I can do, uh, you know, like turning a river into blood or a bunch of frogs, uh, locusts, etc., etc. And usually, Pharaoh's able to bring in some of his posse, some of his magicians, and they're either able to remedy the situation or do the same thing. And so Pharaoh is uh, initially maybe surprised or impressed, but then not so much and becomes hard-hearted. And then it starts over again, right? There's another, another demand, another refusal, another sign, and then we just rinse and repeat again and again for ten signs. This all leads to the Passover, um, which is the final plague, and this is when um, God causes the death of the firstborn of all of the Egyptian children. And um, this is is the straw that breaks Pharaoh's back, Um, and he he says finally, okay, go. Um, but originally, this Passover, then, the, the, as it is described in Exodus, uh, this ritual with, with blood on doorways and so forth, becomes sort of a, a means of protection, right? There is a, there's a way in which, as Exodus tells us, as Exodus recounts it, this ritual protects... Um, the people of Israel from the angel of death. This is our image here, the angel of death who uh, goes from house to house, uh, killing the firstborn uh, child. And so this, this ritual serves as a form of protection, but it also then becomes very fundamental as an act of remembrance, remembering what God has done for the people of Israel and bringing them up out of slavery. Biblical scholars uh, believe that that what we know of the Passover that is preserved in Scripture is probably the result of a combining at some point in Israel's history of two distinct rituals. It wasn't um, originally uh, the way that it was. One was a festival of unleavened bread, and the other was the sacrifice of a of a firstborn lamb. And the idea here is that they were they were sort of combined and historicized, um, brought into. Uh, into conversation with the historical events, or the events of the Passover, and of the Exodus. Um, And so, with that, uh, lots of questions, right? Uh, So let me just name the space, and maybe at the end we can have some wrestling with this. Um, Again, that the death of firstborn children is not something that is uplifting or uh, morally unproblematic. Um, and lots of people have thought about this. Um, but for our purposes today, what, what matters about the Passover and this final plague is that this is what gets Israel moving um, into the wilderness. And so we see in Exodus 12, this is what God says. God led the people by the roundabout way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And this is the, the image that we get of Israel. Uh, God thinks to God's self, well, I could put them on another route, but they might see all the other nations and get scared and want to go back to Egypt. So, let's go the, let's go the scenic route. <laughs> and so, this is the scenic route that God takes them on. And we see in this text from Exodus the, the idea that you may be very familiar with of a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire at night. That which is always guiding them, sort of a, a cosmic... Uh, Um, symbol of God's presence leading the people on this roundabout way. And so they're off. This gets us to uh, the event at sea. So the people of Israel are off. Pharaoh has apparently said, fine, I'm done with you. You've caused enough havoc in 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 my nation. But then he says it's, I, I got to get him back. I can't We can't have this loss. And so, um, Scripture tells us that that the Pharaoh sends his armies to reclaim his runaway slaves in effect, right? Uh, these are runaway slaves at this point. Um, and so, there is this event at sea. And it's difficult, all of the details about the, the event at sea are a little bit difficult to unpack, right? It's not entirely clear where this actually happened um, uh, the the hebrew translation or the hebrew words used describe it as a sea of reeds or a, re, a sea of or the reed sea the septuagint the greek translation of the old testament d- refers to it as the red sea so you might see it as the reed sea or the red sea right so that's presenting some confusion potentially but in addition um, it's not at all clear if it actually happened at a sea um, or if it didn't happen, at some grasslands or some, some wetlands that, that were in the area. Um, and so it's very difficult for us to um, identify it. Uh, as, as biblical, as Hebrew Bible scholars will point out to us, it's more likely although we can't be certain that it occurred sort of in a reedy marsh or a lake. So uh, perhaps the biblical imagination and the artistic imagination of a huge sea being parted um, is, uh, is a, a matter of sanctified imagination, um, that, that perhaps the event happened um, in, the, in, a, in a lake or a marsh. So what exactly happened, right? I've been talking about the event at sea. You guys have ideas. What exactly happened? And the answer, like much of the Bible, especially the Hebrew Bible, is it's complicated. So, this is actually, there are three versions in less than two chapters in the book of Exodus, uh, three potential versions of what has happened. The first is the dry ground crossing. This is the story that we're all most familiar with. It's most likely the Charlton-Histon version. If I admit that I've never seen the charleston histon version, will you look at me with respect? No, okay, I've seen it then. It's a great movie, I've seen it a thousand times. Um, But this is the part where Moses parts the water, the Israelites walk across on dry land, and as the Egyptians attempt to pursue after them, the waters collapse around them. So that's probably the story that most of us are most familiar with. Well, embedded in that story is another version, or a slightly different version, which is um, that they're pursuing them, that's great. Eventually, for some reason, the Egyptians panic because they see that God is with the Israelites in the wilderness. Um, Their chariot wheels get clogged with mud, uh, you know, an indication that maybe this happened in the wetlands, right, where the solid and and wet ground can, can change quickly, and the Egyptians flee. So there's no overcoming wave. There's there's um, there's no dry ground, ground technically, and there's chariots, um, which is another version of the story. And then in Exodus 15, and this seems to be the one that is celebrated in Israel's poetic parts, um, is that Pharaoh's chariots and his army he cast into the sea. His uh, his officers. Um, or his picked officers were sunk in the Red Sea, the floods covered them, they went down into the depths like a stone. It's almost like they were thrown into the sea, or like a big wave came up from the sea and like enveloped them and, and, and take, took them in. As, as biblical scholars will point out, clearly they can't be walking across land and sinking at the same time, right? One of those is, is sort of irreconcilable with the other. And so briefly, um, with these three versions in mind, what do you all think? Is are these contradictory stories? Are these are these different interpretations? Does it matter? Move on already, Holmes. What do you think? All of them could have happened. Different perspectives, maybe. Yeah, 20 witnesses, 20 versions. Um, another sort of interpretation would be that these are just passed down differently. These are, these are r- various recollections on the same event that have been passed down. What else? Who was the pharaoh? Who was the pharaoh? That's a good question. So, um, again, uh, we don't know for certain, but this is, this is the, the best guess. This is the best speculation that I found. Um, is that the, the pharaoh that sort of initially enslaved the Israelites was Seti I, um, who was in power from 1294 until 1279. Um, and then the pharaoh of Exodus, the pharaoh who sends the, the people out to chase um, the Israelites, would be Ramses II, who ruled from 1279 until 1213. Um, Again, this is conjecture, um, and it raises questions about uh, what we can say with any sort of certainty about the historical veracity of an event like this, um, uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that briefly, but why I ask you this question about are they contradictory, are they, how do we make sense of this, is one of the things that, that struck me as I was preparing this week is that the Hebrew Bible is not bothered by potentially contradictory events. There is no need in the Hebrew Bible, or at least in the Pentateuch, for it all to be smoothed out, right? There are different strands. The final editors of the book are happy to have what appear to be contradictions, different versions of the same story, Because they preserved these stories. They thought they were so important that it was worth preserving, even if there is some dissonance in how do we read them all together. And I just think that that is such an interesting way to think, because that's not our Western mind, right? We are so concerned with what actually happened. It's got to be one story. It's either a wave, or it's dry ground, or it's chariot wheels, which is it. And uh, the, the ancient Israelites were comfortable with this dissonance. Um, and what does it say, uh, that's I think is an invitation for our own faith as well. Yeah. Does the truth in the, the message for us change if we land on one, two, or three, or does the… Yeah, yeah, so that, that's great. So the question is, does the sort of truth or the significance of the event matter if we choose A, B, or C? And in my opinion, I don't think it does. Um, and uh, I think the event is what matters, and the event is that Israel experienced liberation from oppression. And, and this is sort of throughout the Old Testament canon, and is adopted in the New Testament canon as well, that, um, that that's what matters. And whether it happened in this really super elaborate, big, big wave, big dry land, or if it happened as, you know, Um, Michael Coogan, a Hebrew Bible professor, suggests, you know, just a a small number of of former slaves under the leadership of Moses getting, you know, freed in the wetlands while their pursuers, who were much more powerful and and militarily um, savvy, get their wheels clogged. It wouldn't have been significant maybe to the Egyptians, but to the people of Israel it was a miracle. And so I think that that there's lots of room there, but what, what I think what matters is that it's the event that gets them there. I saw a question in the back. If you accept the miracle of the parting of the war, it's really not a competition. Because God created droparounds and the, so they're visible and love to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so awesome. So, uh, so the, the, the idea here is that if, if, the, if the miracle of water separated, uh, it would make sense because the sand would still be wet, uh, apparently, um, and so as the as the chariots a- attempted to go through after the Israelites, the wheels would clog. So perhaps A and B aren't um, totally contradictory. I still think part C is a little bit difficult to tie in because it seems like they're on the shore and get tossed in the water, um, not that they're at the bottom of the water already, because you know it can't sink. To the bottom, um, if you're already at the bottom, but but again, I don't. I, I think that the question about contradictory is more of an invitation to see how the Hebrew Bible preserves traditions, um, and we can have all sorts of conversations about how, what we make sense of these, how we make sense of these. So let me let me continue. Um, whoops. Um, Oh, I, I thought I heard whispers. But with the significance of this for their theological memory, as I've already mentioned, it is this event, perhaps more than anything else in the Old Testament, that that preserves God's powerful, redeeming, liberating um, uh, activity on behalf of Israel, and we should note that uh, it's not just the Bible that values this story. That this story has had deep significance for liberation movements throughout the ages, um, uh, from our own civil rights movement to civil rights um, movements in in uh, or liberation movements in Latin America uh, and abroad. And so, it's a deeply important event. Um, and so, the journey continues. Uh, after this. They're saved from Pharaoh, but so does the complaining, non-stop complaining. So the second act is the the mountain of God, Um, this beautiful picture of the people of Israel gathered before the mountain of God. Scholars think that this happened probably three months after the event at sea, that they've now arrived at Sinai, or Horeb, uh, the biblical tradition, again, this is a place where they don't, they don't need to rectify difference. Uh, some parts of the Hebrew Bible refer to this mountain as Sinai. Others refer to it as Horeb. Um, uh, and, and so I'll describe it as the mountain of God because that helps sort of allow me to do both. Um, although we don't know, again, we can't locate this with absolute certainty. This mountain, uh, the biblical tradition tells us, is that same mountain that Moses met God in the burning bush. This is the place where he was initially called and said, uh, God said, you know, as a, as a guarantee of my call on your life, I, you're eventually going to come and meet me on this mountain and worship with the people of Israel after you've been redeemed from slavery. And so this is uh, uh, traditionally identified as um, Jebel Musa, uh, but most likely, biblical scholars tell us it's in, somewhere in North western Arabia Um, but once again we don't know uh, for certain but people who spend lots of time thinking about these things give us some best guesses this is the longest stop on their journey Um, this is the place that the biblical tradition says that they sort of set up camp Perhaps for as long as a year they're there and they're worshiping. Uh, This is uh, a significant place in the story of their wandering uh, because it is here that God makes a covenant with Moses and with the people of Israel, uh, similar to the covenant that he made with Abraham or Noah, uh, earlier covenants in the Hebrew Bible. This is where Moses receives the Ten Commandments, right? While he's up on the mountain, he receives them on stone. He comes down from the mountain, he shatters them. It's also where we receive all sorts of instructions, uh, religious, uh, ethical instructions. And as we talked about, this is where we see the golden calf incident, which is uh, briefly told, Moses is up on the mountain getting those Ten Commandments, life is good, and the people of Israel all of a sudden say, what are we doing in the wilderness? We don't know Moses, and we don't know this God that he claims to worship. Aaron, please give us something tangible. There's this fiery madness on the mountain with Moses. Who knows, he could have been burned down. And so make us gods that we can touch. Make us gods that we can see. And so Aaron boils down all of their gold jewelry into a golden calf. They worship the golden calf. Moses comes down at the sort of uh, advice of God and breaks the Ten Commandments, uh, and punishment ensues. Right? Um, it's a it's a it's a fascinating moment of of many moments to come of refusal and rebellion against both Moses, and um, and God. And coincidentally, uh, Aaron is sort of there facilitating it. Um, uh, and uh, yes. Uh, So, uh, once they've left Mount Sinai, this is when the wilderness wandering really begins. And uh, again, based on uh, our, our biblical tradition, um, it's really difficult to trace the journey. Depending on how you count, there's three to six different itineraries presented in the Pentateuch of sort of how they go about uh, the ancient Near Eastern world uh, in order to eventually get to the border of the Promised Land. It's important, then, that in this something like 40 years of wondering um, that Israel's later traditions remember this in a variety of ways. So Psalm 78 verses 40 through 41, remember it as primarily negative. This is what that text says, how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. So for the psalmist, the wilderness is primarily a place of testing and failure. The people of Israel test God again and again. They rebel against God. um, And as a result of that, God's anger is kindled against them. But Jeremiah 2, 2 gives us a different perspective about that very same event. Jeremiah 2 says, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Jeremiah presents the wilderness almost like a betrothal period or a honeymoon period in God's relationship with Israel. Positive. It's where, it's, you were young there. Um, And we'll say it, it was only after the establishment, Jeremiah will say, that they began to rebel against God and worship other gods and uh, so forth. And so there is a lot of rebellion and complaining from the very start of the journey. This is how Numbers 11 puts it, right as they set out from Sinai. Now, when the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes, the Lord heard it, and his anger was kindled. Then the fire of the Lord burned against them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. So the fire is (laughs) approaching, seems to be burning the fridges of the camp. But the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire abated. So that place was called Teborah, because the fire of the Lord burned against them. The rabble among them had a strong craving, and the Israelites also wept and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt for nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. after this miraculous event at sea, after a year of worshipping a burning fire, they say, oh, I wish we could go back to slavery. It was so much better back then, at least we had a good menu. (laughs) At least we had meat and melons, right? And so this continues, this pattern continues throughout Numbers and, and much of Exodus. That there's this general pattern of resistance or rebellion either towards God or God's emissaries. God gets angry, and usually there's some form of punishment, partial punishment. Moses intercedes, says, God, you know these people. You've seen them. Come on, give them a break. The divine punishment is decreased or averted, and we just rinse and repeat for 15 chapters in Numbers. Um, And so... What do we, what, what sorts of stories are we talking about? We're talking about lots and lots of conflict. Um, and just to talk briefly about each of these, there's division in the ranks of the prophets. Miriam gets thrown under the bus in Numbers 12. At least that's how Will Gaffney reads it, and I think it's correct. Because Miriam says to Moses, wait, you can't take this other wife and leave your first wife and your children behind. That's, that ain't right. And yet... As Numbers 12 presents it, Miriam is in the wrong. Miriam and Aaron are both in the wrong. And Miriam is punished as a result of this. Um, Aaron doesn't get punished. What's with that, God? I don't know. But there's this division in the ranks around Moses' second marriage. Then you might remember the story of the spies who are sent to see the promised land. And they come back and they say, yeah, there's some big dudes there. And it's powerful, but it's beautiful. And it's, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. And of the, of the spies that go, only two say, I think we can do this. And the people of Israel side with the fearful ones. And as a result, God says, okay, this generation cannot go into the promised land. They're too fearful. That You can, you can wander around in the roundabout way for 40 more years. The priests challenged Moses. Uh, in, in chapter 21, Moses, Moses loses his temper about water. And this is a strange story if you want some extracurricular reading this week. Um, go to Numbers 20. Uh, apparently, Moses strikes the rock, but but he either did it in anger or did it without the commission of God. For whatever reason, water comes and the people are able to drink. But God says to Moses, because you did it this way, you don't get to enter the promised land either. Yeah. Yes. Because it I right, is the four years after they have seen the promised land and then they still have so how long did it take them to originally get there? Yeah. Great question. So the question was, what, 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 you keep saying 40 years, what does that mean? So it, it's actually that they don't get there for 40 years. Um, the spies alone go to spy out the land, but everyone else is sort of still in the wilderness, wandering about. So from, from basically, uh, let's say for, for simple numbers purposes, from leaving the mountain of God until the entrance into the promised land, it's at least 40 years of wandering around in the wilderness, in the roundabout way. Yeah. It's not that far. Yeah, no, I don't think it's a it's 40 years is is perceived as a punishment. Um uh and 40 is a perfect number that sort of signifies a full generation. So what again what matters I think from a from a theological even probably a practical perspe- perspective is God is saying this generation will not get in. And biblical scholars will tell you this is perhaps an explanation for why the, the original generation didn't make it, um, that, that, that the people, the, the scribes and authors preserved as they remembered this experience, that this generation that was in Egypt didn't make it to the Promised Land. What's with that? Um, there's a variety of explanations offered, but the basic idea is it took them way too long to get there, way, way too long. Not yet. Yeah. Yeah, that's when they were told that they had 40 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, it the sky the sky the the skies. The spies go out, come back, report and the people are like not not worth it. We'll just chill here and they get 40 years uh, of, of more wondering as a as a consequence. Another question, are you talking about? calf. Yeah, so this is the super great question. Um, whether or not Israel worshiped God in, in Egypt while, while there, yes. So what, it's a much broader question, which is how the Hebrew Bible presents Israel's sort of evolving understanding of God. Because even when Moses is called, he says, okay, you're sending me to these people of Israel, but who should I say sent me? And God gives him a name. God says, I am the Lord, the God of, of the ancestors. And so it suggests that um, maybe, the, maybe the people of Israel were familiar with, with Israel's tribal God um, or something like that, but but maybe didn't worship that God exclusively. And um, people who study the history of religions would suggest that the Israelites probably progressed from being polytheistic, meaning they they worshipped whatever God would, would benefit them, uh, to being rigidly monotheistic, Um, and, and that the biblical tradition wants to make that seem like it happened immediately, but probably life on the ground was much more complicated. It took a while. And this explains why, when they're in exile, they continue to worship other gods. Even here, they're going to, in Numbers 25, they're going to worship foreign gods um, and so forth. So so we we need to be careful, I think, in assuming that they were monotheistic from the beginning in, in a rigid way and see it more as uh, the writings themselves suggest, which was probably more of an evolved way of being um, religious. So lots, you can see, of wondering that is not great. And so... In summary, according to Exodus and Numbers, journeying is not so awesome. It's a matter of life and death, both in terms of being out in a barren wilderness, but also dealing with a living God whose fire is going to burn the fringes of the camp. It's a time of dissolving trust. The people of Israel dissolve in their trust towards God and trust towards their leaders and towards one another we might say that journeying becomes for these people a matter of resistance to an unknown future um, and a longing for a past that is oppressive um, a a longing to go back what's in the psyche and i'm and i know psychologists and uh, post-colonial scholars have a lot to say about what's in the psyche of a person who would like to go back to oppression what is comfort it's what they know Um, uh, and and so forth one of the things that I will hold up to you about this story, if you, if you come back and read Numbers or Exodus on yourself, is there is a brutal honesty about Israel's sacred tradition. I don't think that any of us talk about our own past with a sort of honesty. Everyone fails, Moses fails, Aaron fails, the people of Israel fail. One might even say that God fails at times um, when he says to Moses, hey, I'll just burn these people up. We can start all over from scratch. How does that sound, Moses? And it's Moses who says no. You've made this promise, so you can't do this. And so I think that this brutal honesty is an invitation. And so in closing, well, just briefly as an epilogue, they get to the Jordan. They're almost about to cross over. Moses can see it from from the mountain, but he can't enter in. The 40 years, the generation has passed. They can't enter in. Joshua, Moses' successor, is the one who will lead the people of Israel in to conquest and, 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 and claim that land. So as we, as we think about our own journeys, I return to our opening wisdom. Homer at the end says, happy times. Somehow he gets there and it's all happy, right? And I wonder if that's the same with many of us in our journeys of faith and in our journeys of life. That we've, it's easy to forget just how hard that journey was. Maybe some of you have had small children, and it's easy once you become older to forget how hard it is with small children. I know I experienced that talking to my parents about our own kids. It's not that hard. You guys are fine. Why are you so worried about sleep? Well, it's hard in the moment. Please be sympathetic to that. The second thing is that I think that change is hard. And this this general sort of paradigm of redemption, mountaintop experience followed by 40 years of questions and rebellion and backsliding seems pretty adequate to a lot of how I understand life. Whether that's your own spiritual life of you've had these moments, you've gone, you've made these great strides, and then all of a sudden an illness or a relationship or something else creeps in, and you're done with 40 years now of dealing with that, of working through that. We can think about our own nation's history of the the mountaintop experience of the civil rights movement, and now the 40, 50, 60 years of continuing to deal with and unravel systemic racism in this country. It's a long journey, change is hard, transformation takes a long time. And then the, the, the final sort of question that I would ask is, where do we find ourselves in this story? It's easy to identify The children in our lives as the whiny Israelites. Are we whiny Israelites? Are we Aaron? Do we, do we watch as people create false gods? Do we enable them to create false gods? Do we, do we, are we like Moses? Are we afraid to speak, to find our voice and make, and speak up against oppression and violence? I think, With this last question, it's also apropos for us to think about the ways in which this narrative of taking over the promised land has been heard differently in our nation's history. You may know that that settlers regarded themselves as new Israel claiming the promised land of God. And of course, African slaves regarded themselves as the people of Israel in Egypt and their white masters as Pharaoh and slave owners. And so it's interesting, it's important for us to realize and locate ourselves in this story and be able to hear it differently. Native people groups in our country regard themselves much more like the Canaanites who experienced genocide and forced exile than they do with the people of Israel. And so how do we find ourselves in this story? Um, Figuratively as well as um, spiritually, I think is is an important question. So I'm going to end there. It's exactly 1044, um, which means we have maybe a couple minutes for some questions and comments uh, before going to 11 o'clock worship with plenty of time. Yes. Yeah. Again, uh, I don't think we can know for certain, um, but, but at least, you know, 30 years or so, right? Because the, there's a transition in Pharaoh's leadership. Uh, at least three Pharaohs. So there's the Pharaoh of Joseph, um, and then there's the Pharaoh who oppresses the people of Israel, and then there's the Pharaoh who chases. But it could be much longer, actually. Um, and I will... I'll see what I can dig up as to the specifics, but it but it's the way that Exodus opens is it's like there was this time and then there was this other time. Um and all of a sudden the Pharaoh has changed his mind. And that's sort of how I read it. Yes, and then here. Is, is there any reference in Egyptian literature? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so this, this is great, and this will probably take us right fresh to time, and if anybody needs to walk out, that's, that, that's, that's fine. So there's, there's very little in the non-biblical history of this event. So much so that this is one of those things that uh, certain scholars will say, maybe it never happened, right? We don't have anything that, that can happen. Um, where, where people, when they're studying, trying to find the historical veracity of this event, where they go is they, they go to an event um, that, was, that, that is described in a historian by the name of Manetho. Um, who says that there is this? Uh, he says that Israel comes from uh, this um, priest in the Hellenistic period, um, and that Ju- Jerusalem was built by the Hyksos people um, after uh, they were expelled from Egypt. And so there's there's a, there's some version of this this people, the Hyksos people, that uh, eventually come out of Egypt. Um, it becomes elaborated so that maybe it's 80,000 lepers. Um, but, but the idea that this story, and this is preserved in Josephus, who's a Jewish historian writing in the first century, um, th- that, that would say, th- this story is probably, they would say, that, that, that this Hyksos people weren't so significant that Egypt missed them. So, if that's the origins of Israel um, and this Exodus event, it would be much smaller. Um, and and this, this might then explain why there is so little about it in, in the other historical records. Maybe it's, maybe it's Egypt is just ashamed of this. Or, um, as Michael Coogan again says, maybe it's just that it was a miracle to the people of Israel and of little significance to the people of Egypt. Um, uh, and this has to do with, um, I think, in general, critical Bible, critical scholarship of the Hebrew Bible will say a lot of these numbers in the biblical tradition are, you know, sort of built up so that um, so much so that that there's, it's said that 600,000 Israelites come out of Egypt um, in the, the Exodus, and uh, scholars will say that's more than, the, the, more than double the sort of total population of Egypt at the time, uh, based on archeological evidence. So the numbers are probably inflated, these scholars would say. Um, but to Katie's earlier point, does that diminish the significance of these events if the numbers have been um, you know, sort of like the fish story? I, originally it was this big and this big, and depending on how many times I tell it. I don't think it diminishes it, but it, but it, ha- it has to do with um, what archaeology can verify for us, and, and history, and what, what the, these texts claim. Okay, well that's it, uh, we'll see you next week for The Exile.